Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome back. It's uh, good to see so many people out here for this uh, final session. I know that coming out to church on a Monday night is a little bit of a strange thing, but hopefully uh, I'll make it worth your while. So we're continuing uh, the, the theme uh, that I was speaking on uh, yesterday, the theme of uh, worldviews. And uh, we looked at um, uh, a couple of worldviews uh, last evening, uh, naturalism and, and uh, pantheism. And uh, to this evening our focus is going to be on a worldview that's very closely related to a religion. It really is clearly a religious worldview, and that is the worldview of Islam. And we're going to try and understand uh, where... Uh, what, what uh, view of the world uh, Islam tries to present, and we're going to engage with it. We're going to do a bit of uh, critique using some of the tools that I talked about yesterday, and also I'm going to round off with some practical tips on how, how we can hopefully have uh, profitable uh, conversations, uh, gospel-centered conversations with the Muslims that we meet. Well, let's start off uh, just with... Oh, let me try. All right. Uh, so let me give you a preview of, of just where, where we're going to head with our topic tonight. I'm going to start by talking about the, the basic idea, the core, what is the core of uh, Islam, the core idea. Uh, then I'm going to cover some basic facts about how we find uh, Islam in the world today and some of the, some of the def- demographic challenges. Uh, then we're going to uh, look in some detail at the Islamic worldview before we test it, test it with those tools that I talked about yesterday. And then, as I say, we're going to finish up with some practical advice on sharing the gospel with Muslims. So, to begin, Islam, the basic idea. Here is the basic idea, uh, the the core of Islam boiled down to one statement. uh, Allah is the only God, and he has no son. Muhammad is his final prophet, and the Quran is his eternal word. That would be, I think, the dead center of the religion of Islam. And note that in that statement, there are four components. There are four components. First, Allah is the only God. Right? So there's, there's, there's one God. This is very important to, uh, to Islam. But secondly, this God has no son. So there's, there's a, a denial there of the Trinity. Basically, this is a, a, an understanding of God that's at odds, that's contradicting the, the, uh, the, the Christian understanding of God, the Father, and God the Son. And then we have a statement about how this God has revealed himself. Muhammad is his final prophet, and the Quran is his eternal word. This is the core understanding of, of uh, what kind of a God there is and how this God has revealed himself. Islam has a, a very simple creed or confession of faith, and this is, this is it. You know, Christians have their uh, creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Well, the Islamic creed is called the Shahada, and it's very, very simple. And it's, it's, uh, this is the English translation. If you're a Muslim, you would, you would recite this in Arabic, even if Arabic wasn't your native language, you would say it in Arabic. But uh, the, the meaning of the creed is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And again, note there's two parts here. The first part is a statement about God. There's no God but Allah. It's only one God. And secondly, about a statement about how this God has revealed himself through Muhammad. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. These are the two essential components of the Islamic creed known as the Shahada. And a faithful Muslim will repeat this creed several times a day as part of their, their ritual prayers. And in fact, this is how someone becomes a Muslim. You would, the, the way that you would be recognized as having converted to Islam would be by reciting this creed. Islam 
largely defines itself in opposition to other religions. Uh, and there are two basic ways in which it contrasts itself. First, by asserting monotheism. So in, in contrast to pagan polytheistic religions that worship idols, that worship other gods or multiple gods. Islam is strictly monotheistic. But secondly, it also defines itself as as being unitarian. It is a unitarian religion, so it defines itself in opposition to Christian monotheism or Trinitarian monotheism. Uh, It it insists resolutely that God is, is one person or, or, or there's, no, there's no diversity or plurality within Allah. And so, for example, this is uh, one statement in the Quran, Stay, say not trinity. Actually, in the original Arabic, it's simply say not three. Do not say three. Desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. So you see the two affirmations here. On the one hand, there's only one God. And secondly, this God does not have a son. This is Unitarian monotheism at the core of Islam. Now, how do we find uh, Islam in the world today? What are some, some statistics that give us a sense of how, how uh, widespread Islam is in the world? Well, first, in terms of numbers, here's a, a pie chart that shows uh, the, the general proportions of different religions in the world. This, this represents how things were in 2007, uh, and of course these are estimates as well. So this is a little dated, actually. Things have moved on a little bit since then, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But roughly speaking, uh, one-third of the world's population would profess to be Christians. And that would include all Christian traditions, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox and Protestant, and also some, some Christian cults as well, according to, to this data. Whereas uh, Muslims, those who profess to be Muslims, well, in 2007, about 21%, so roughly one in five. So Christians, professing Christians, one in three in the world, and Muslims, one in five. So certainly Islam is the second largest religion, at least demographically defined, in the world and, uh, and has been for some time. However, there are also trends that uh, mean that these numbers are changing all the time. Here's some, a graph provided by the Pew Research Center. The Pew Research Center does a lot of uh, research surveys on religious trends. It's a very reliable source. And uh, what they uh, have determined based on their, uh, their uh, statistical data is that, that Islam is growing at a, a quite uh, alarming rate in the world, certainly from a Christian perspective. Um, this, this shows the global trends Uh, from the period 2010 to 2050. So it's based on a projection of current uh, rates of increase. And according to this data, uh, the proportion of Christians in the world is going to roughly remain constant at around 31% from 2010 to 2050, whereas Islam is growing. Whereas in 2010, it accounted for 23.2% of the world. Uh, by t- if, if current trends continue, then it will, um, it will reach 29.7% by 2050. And if you keep projecting, what that means is that at some point in the second half of the 21st century, Islam will overtake Christianity as the largest world religion. That is a very, very sobering thought. Um, some of us in this room may live to see that. Uh, that at least in terms of professed religion, Islam will overtake Christianity. And the main reason for this, you're probably wondering, is birth rates. 
birth rates. It's not conversions, it is, it is birth rates. The birth rates in the Muslim world are, are much, uh, more, um, much uh, increased compared with the, the Christian world. The fact is that Christians are not procreating as much as historically they have, uh, and Muslims are, and that's what accounts for it. What about uh, more locally uh, in here in the United States? Again, here's some data from the uh, Pew Research Center, again from 2015, showing the percentage of the population of the United States that represent um, non-Christian religions. And you can see that in 2015, uh, Jews represented 1.8% and Muslims 1% of the population. But look at the trends. Uh, the percentage of Jews is, is decreasing and uh, the Islamic population is increasing so that it's projected by 2050 to have doubled to 2.1%. And notice that around about the year 2030, 2035, uh, the proportion of Muslims will overtake the proportion of Jews in the United States population. Again, that's hugely significant when you think about the, the, the role that the Jewish population of America has played over the years to be overtaken by uh, Muslim population is very significant uh, demographic, demographic um, fact. And, and again, uh, the, the reasons for this are not because large, people, large numbers of people are converting to Islam, but rather it's birth rates again, and in fact, uh, immigration is contributing to that as, as well. In terms of world distribution, here's a map that shows you the lay of uh, the, lie of the land. Um, the, the green countries, the countries marked in green, are Muslim-majority countries. You probably can't read the text there, so I'll, I'll just tell you that the green countries are, are more than 50% Muslim. So you can see all of North Africa, all of the Middle East, uh, a lot of the former uh, USSR states, all, all the stands, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and so forth, uh, and Indonesia. Indonesia as well is majority Muslim. And in fact, Indonesia, believe it or not, is the most populous Islamic country in the world today. Uh, second, uh, Pakistan is the second most populous Islamic country. Not, not Saudi Arabia, not any Middle Eastern country. Uh, the, the yellow countries are more than 10%. So the country's marked in yellow, more than 10%. And notably, France. You see France there in Europe? That often surprises people to hear that France is more than 10% Muslim now. And uh, some of you may be wondering about that little country in, uh, in South America. Any, anyone know what that country is? No? It's a good guess, but no. Suriname. Suriname actually is around 14% Muslim. The reason for that is because it's a former Dutch colony and had a lot of immigration from Indonesia. There's a lot of Indonesian immigrants in Suriname. That's what accounts for that. Okay, well, let's turn to, to look at the religion of Islam itself. What are some of the core beliefs that define Islam? You know, we talk about Christianity. What are the sort of core doctrines or beliefs of Christians? Well, in Islam, things are very clear because traditionally, Islam has affirmed five core beliefs, five things that you have to believe to be a faithful Muslim. The first is belief in God, and not just belief in God, but belief in, in, in the one God. Um, Allah is not, strictly speaking, a proper name. Uh, it's not like Thor or Zeus. It's not meant to be a proper name like that. Allah is simply the Arabic word for God, so it's more a title. Uh, Allah simply means the God. So to believe in Allah is to believe that there is a, a God and there is one God. That's the most fundamental belief of Islam. Secondly, belief in the angels. 
Uh, the Quran has a lot to say about the angels and uh, their role in Allah's uh, actions in the world. And so you have to believe in, in the angels as sort of spiritual messengers and protectors of human beings. Thirdly, belief in the prophets and the messengers. Islam teaches that there have been a series of prophets, actually hundreds, hundreds of prophets that Allah has sent to, to uh, mankind in the course of history. And there's a special category of prophets known as messengers. Messengers. Sometimes they're called apostles, but usually now they're called messengers. And the messenger is a prophet who brings a book. That's what's special about a messenger. A messenger doesn't just give a, a revelation. They give a book to a people, uh, a people group at a particular time. Now, this leads to the third, or rather the fourth, the fourth belief, belief in the books. That may surprise you. you. You maybe thought Islam just has belief in a book, the Quran. Well, the Quran is the most important uh, divine scripture, divinely inspired scripture for Muslims. But actually, Islam teaches that there have been a series of scriptures revealed, uh, given, um, sent down from heaven by Allah to people at different times. And so... Uh, Islam teaches that a, a book was given to Moses. Moses was a prophet of God and he received the Torah, that David was a prophet and that David received a book called the Zabur, probably meaning the book of Psalms. And uh, Jesus, uh, Islam teaches, Jesus was a messenger who brought a book known as the Gospel. And that's the book of the scripture of the Christians. But then Muhammad, Muhammad comes last of all, and Muhammad brings the most important book of all, and that is the Quran. So in order to be a faithful Muslim, you have to believe that God has not just sent messengers, but that he's provided these books, these scriptures to different people at different times, the final book being the Quran. And then fifthly, there's belief in the day of judgment, a day of judgment. Islam teaches that uh, at some point in the future, um, there is going to be a, a, uh, an end of history when everybody is resurrected. So there's a doctrine of the resurrection. Everybody's going to be, all the dead will be raised. And there will be a day of judgment when uh, people are judged according to how they've lived their lives and some will enter Paradise and others will enter hell. I'll say a bit more about that later on. Some Muslims would say there's a sixth belief as well, and that's belief in the decree. I put a question mark here because it's not always counted alongside the other five. But certainly Islam has a strong doctrine of what is called the decree, that everything that takes place takes place according to the will of Allah. Allah has decreed this, Allah has decreed that, and it's all going to happen exactly according to the decree of Allah. And so often... Uh, Muslims will say when speaking of future events, events that, that you don't know whether they're going to happen or not, they will say, uh, Inshallah. You maybe have heard some Muslims saying, um, uh, something will happen, Inshallah. I'll, I'll meet you for dinner next Tuesday, Inshallah. What that means is, if Allah wills. If Allah wills it, or if Allah has decreed it. And we say something similar, don't we? We say, you know, I'll see you next week, Lord willing. Um, but for Muslims, it's a very, very strong sense of divine providence, divine decree. It's part of their belief system. But just as important for Islam are the practices, not just the beliefs, but the practices. In fact, it has been said that Islam is more a, a religion of orthopraxy than orthodoxy, right practice rather than right beliefs. The beliefs of Islam are actually very, very simple and small in number. What's much more important are the practices, how you live out your Islamic faith. And there are five, 
what are called the five pillars of Islam, of Islam, five core practices that every good Muslim should follow. The first is profession or confession of faith, reciting the shahada, the shahada that I mentioned a moment ago, the basic confession of faith, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So the first thing you must do is profess in order to become a Muslim. You, you say the shahada and then you repeat it every day uh, numerous times. Secondly, the second pillar is prayer. Prayer. Uh, you're probably aware that uh, Muslims have to pray five times a day at certain set times that uh, follow actually the, the course of the sun. Uh, there's one at sort of sunrise and there's one at noon and one at sunset and in the evening. Uh, so these, these prayer times vary over the course of a year. But at certain set times, prescribed times, you have to go through a set of uh, ritual prayers that are they're not extemporary prayers, uh, you, you have to follow certain words and perform certain uh, actions or gestures as you are praying. And these are um, acts, of, acts of worship, acts of submission, acts of devotion to Allah that a faithful Muslim must do daily. Thirdly, fasting. Uh, fasting is the, the third pillar during the month of uh, Ramadan, in the Islamic calendar, uh, Ramadan is the month when supposedly uh, Allah revealed the Quran first to Muhammad. And during this month of Ramadan, uh, Muslims are required to fast, uh, a complete fast from, from all food, uh, all drink, and all sexual activity between sunrise and sunset. And some Muslims take this so seriously that uh, they would say, you, you mustn't even swallow your saliva uh, during the fast, because if you do, then that's, that counts as drinking. And you, if you do, you have to you know, make amends for it and make penance for it in some way or other. So fasting, the month of Ramadan, is a very important pillar. Thirdly, zakat. Zakat is almsgiving or, or, or giving regular tithing, if you will, uh, to the Islamic community. Uh, Muslims are required, more by tradition, the Quran doesn't state this, but by tradition, uh, Muslims are expected to give 2.5%, that's one fortieth, of their total wealth, not just their income, but their total wealth, to the cause of Allah, which sometimes is interpreted as the needy, the poor in the Islamic community. Sometimes it's interpreted more broadly as promoting the cause of Islam in the world, so uh, paying for mosques to be built in, in new places uh, and so forth. It's interpreted in different ways. But almsgiving, it's not charitable giving because it's not, it's not voluntary. It is, it is required. I mean, Muslims will give, give charitably as well, but that would be on top of zakat. And then the fifth pillar is pilgrimage, or the hajj. The hajj. Uh, every able-bodied Muslim man, it's really the men who are expected to do this. Some women do do it, but uh, not all would be expected to do it. But certainly all men who are financially able and physically able are expected at once in their lifetime to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, the holy city, and to participate in a series of, of ritual acts. Um, the, the, the main one is circling the Kaaba. That's what that picture shows there. Uh, probably hundreds, even thousands of Muslims uh, circling this cubic building called the Kaaba, which is considered to be a holy shrine. Um, according to tradition, it's built on the site where uh, Abraham was required to sacrifice his son, Ishmael, not Isaac, 
According to Islamic tradition, it was actually Ishmael rather than Isaac that, uh, that, um, uh, I, that Abraham was required to sacrifice. He didn't. God provided a, a, a ram in his place. And out of thanksgiving, uh, Abraham built the, the Kaaba. That's, that's the tradition anyway. And you can see uh, this is actually a time-lapse photograph. It's not as though they're moving that fast <laughs> with the, the blurred picture there. It's a time-lapse photograph showing the circular motion around the Kaaba. And that's, that's the climax of the Hajj, the pilgrimage. Well, that gives you a basic sense of how, how Muslims understand the core beliefs and core practices of their faith. But we want to approach this from the perspective of a worldview. Uh, thinking about the categories of a worldview that I talked about yesterday. If you remember, if you, if you were part of the sessions yesterday, you'll remember I, I, I identified these five components or five elements of a worldview, T-A-K-E-S. Every worldview has a theology, a view of God, anthropology, a view of mankind, uh, a knowledge, view of uh, how, we, how we know what we know, has an ethical system, an understanding of morality, and it has a view of salvation, what's fundamentally wrong with the world and what is the solution, how should that problem be addressed. Now, I should issue a kind of a, a qualification before I go any further. It's important to understand that Islam, as we find it in the world today, is not a monolithic religion by any means. There's a lot of diversity in the Islamic world, just as there's a lot of diversity in the Christian world. If you go across the world and talk to all of the people who identify as Christian, you actually get a lot of variation, uh, theologically, culturally, uh, all kinds of uh, dimensions of diversity. And the same is true of Islam. So we're going to be generalizing quite a bit here. I'm going to be focusing on what would be considered traditional Orthodox Sunni Islam. Sunni Islam is the main form of Islam in the world. It accounts for around 85% of the world's Muslims. And I'm going to be um, treating Islam as represented by the, the traditional form of Sunni Islam. It's the most common form. Much of what I say here will also apply to Shia Islam as well. There are some, some minor differences. But um, I'm really taking what would be traditional Sunni Islam as representing Islam for the purposes of this, this talk this evening. So let's look at each of these five areas, starting with theology, the Islamic worldview. What is its theology? What is its view of God, its understanding of God? Well, as we've seen, Islam teaches that there is a God, there's only one God, and God is not a trinity. God is one. God is not, it's not just that there is one God, but God is one. God is a pure, undivided unity. This is known as the doctrine of Tawheed. It's the central doctrine of Islam. Uh, Tawheed means oneness. So Islam is very insistent on the oneness of God. There's no diversity. There's no um, uh, different persons within the Godhead. If God can be called a person at all, it's just that there is one person. Okay? So it rejects outright any doctrine of the Trinity. God is understood to be the sovereign creator of the universe, so they have a doctrine of creation that God freely chose to create this universe and God continually sustains all things and surrounds all things. So Islam teaches that God is all-powerful and is all-present, present everywhere. There's a, a verse in the Quran that says that um, God is closer to a man than his jugular vein, which of course is pretty close, right? But God is even closer. Uh, and this actually isn't meant to be a comforting thought. The idea is that God is close uh, to, he's watching you. And uh, he, he, is, he is 
uh, uh, keeping account of your good deeds and your bad deeds and, and is ready to judge at any time. That's the kind of um, omnipresence idea. Uh, so God is, God is the sovereign creator, and according to Islam, God is utterly transcendent and unlike anything in the creation. Here's a difference with Christianity. Christianity teaches that God is transcendent, he's above his creation, he's distinct from his creation, but also he's intimately present within his creation in a personal way. And there is some similarity between God and his creation. The creation reflects the attributes of God in certain ways, whereas Islam teaches that God cannot be compared to anything within the creation. You can't liken God to anything in the, in the creation, which leads to a certain sort of agnosticism about the, the attributes of God, whether God is knowable. Certainly, Islam denies that God can enter into personal relationships with his creatures. This God is a very distant God, a God far removed from his creation, even though he acts in it, not, it's not in a close personal way. We have this doctrine of the decree as well, according to Islamic teaching. Nothing takes place in the creation apart from God's sovereign decree. So there's a very strong understanding of divine providence. And another thing that Islam is quite insistent about is that God is a merciful God. A lot of Christians will say there's no, <clears throat> there's no grace in Islam. Christianity teaches grace, Islam, Islam does not. That's not strictly correct. Um, actually, every single chapter in the Quran, except one, begins by saying that God is most gracious, most merciful. Uh, or, or all gracious and all forgiving is sometimes how it's put. So, Islam does teach that God is merciful. That God sometimes forgives sins. But the problem is that God's mercy cannot be taken for granted. It's sort of arbitrary, it's capricious. Sometimes God uh, uh, overlooks sin, sometimes he doesn't, but there's no telling. There's no guarantee one way or the other. You just have to wait and see. Okay, that's the theology side of Islam. What about anthropology? What about its view of, of mankind, of humanity? Islam teaches that humans were specially created by God. A number of times in the Quran, you get the account of God creating Adam. And Adam is said to be formed out of clay. So Islam rejects any evolutionary story, or at least traditionally Islam has always denied uh, uh, the theory of evolution, the idea that, God, that man is descended from lower creatures, and has taught that uh, mankind was created. Adam and Eve were created specially by God. However, Islam does not teach that man is created in the image of God. Whereas in the Genesis account, we're told that mankind are created in the image, in the likeness of God. Islam basically denies that because it says that Allah is utterly unlike any creature. It cannot be compared to any creature. So by implication, Man isn't like God in any way. There's not the idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, is not taught and it's implicitly denied. Islam teaches that uh, there is a spiritual aspect to us, so uh, it rejects secular views that say that human beings are just biological organisms, just physical organisms. According to Islam, we have a soul as well as a body. There's a physical side and a spiritual side. And Islam teaches that physical death is not the end. It basically gets this from Christianity, that, um, that when you die, your soul continues, and there will be a day of resurrection when the soul and the body are reunited. And so it does teach um, uh, life after death and a, and a final resurrection. 
However, another point of difference with Christianity is that Islam denies the doctrine of original sin, whereas Christianity teaches that when Adam fell, the whole human race fell in Adam, became corrupted and uh, guilty of original sin. Islam denies that. We are not sinful by nature. According to Islam, we're born in a sort of neutral state and we're able to do good and we're able to do evil. We're not born in bondage to sin, we're not born corrupt, but rather we corrupt ourselves by making choices that are evil choices. In fact, Islam goes further and says that everyone is actually born Muslim. What that means is everyone is born in a state of submission to Allah. That's what the word Muslim means. A Muslim is one who is submitted to the will of Islam, uh, to the will of, will of Allah. And uh, according to traditional Muslim teaching, every human being is born in a state of submission. That's the, that, like all creation is sort of under submission to God, but not everyone stays Muslim. Some people are led astray by false teachings, by their parents, by their community, and so some people become Christian, some people become Jews, some people become atheists. They deviate from what is called the straight path. The straight path is the path of obedience to Allah. What is our purpose in life, according to Islam? Um, according to the Bible, our purpose in life is to, to bring glory to God. Uh, wh- whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our ultimate purpose is to glorify God and to worship God. According to Islam, our purpose, I think the best way to summarize the Islamic view, would be to say our purpose in life is to submit, to submit to the will of God. Again, the word Islam itself means submission or surrender. The purpose of life is to be in full, complete submission to the will of God. And this will is expressed in a divine law known as Sharia. That's what Sharia means. It just means Islamic law or divine law. The idea that God has set rules that govern every aspect of human life, from the, from the very personal aspects to family life, to community life, to political life, is all falls into the category of Sharia, divine law, and our purpose is to be obedient and to submit to the will of God expressed in his law, in his will. <clears throat> Moving on to knowledge. What about the Islamic view of knowledge? Uh, how, do we, how do we know things? And what things do we know? What are the most important things to know? Well, for Islam, the most important thing to know is the will of God. If your purpose is to submit to the will of God, then you need to know what the will of God is. And so Islam teaches a doctrine of divine revelation. God has revealed, well, actually not himself. This is, again, a point of difference with Christianity. We would say that God has not just revealed his will to us, he's revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself supremely in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus is the image of the Father. But according to Islamic teaching... God has revealed only his will. He hasn't revealed himself. He hasn't revealed his character. He's simply revealed his will. And he's done this through a series of prophets over the course of history. And Muhammad is one of the prophets, but he's the last. He's the final prophet. He's known as what is called the the seal of the prophets, the seal that, that seals off the end of the line of prophets. So he's the final and definitive messenger from Allah. And Muhammad brought a book, or he was given a book known as the Quran. The Quran, the word Quran literally means recitation, recitation, because it's a book that's supposed to be recited. That's what you do with the Quran. You memorize it and you recite it. And that's what Muhammad did when he received it. He memorized it. He passed it on to others. 
The Quran is held to be the literal dictated word of God. It isn't a human book. It didn't have a human author. Um, you might think that Muslims believe that Muhammad wrote the Quran under divine inspiration because you might think that, like the Bible, the, there were human authors of the Bible, but they were inspired by God. But no, according to Islam, there's only one author of the Quran, and that's God. And, and he, uh, he, he gave it to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel dictated it to Muhammad. Muhammad memorized it, and his followers later wrote it down. The Quran is believed to be perfect in every respect. It is a miraculous book. It is perfect in its, in its poetic qualities, in its grammar, in its truth. Uh, everything about it is perfect, according to Islamic teaching. And many Muslims believe that there is, in fact, a heavenly original of the Quran, a preserved tablet, a heavenly tablet with the words of the Quran written on it that has existed eternally with Allah. The, the orthodox belief among <coughs> Muslims is that the Quran isn't a created book. It's actually an eternal book that is now revealed and then written down and there are, there are copies of the Quran that Muslims have, but there is a heavenly original. And the Quran is believed to be the defining miracle of Islam. It's the miraculous nature, the perfections of the Quran that prove its divine origins. Uh, if you were asked as a Christian, what is the defining miracle of the Christian faith? How would you answer that? What's the defining miracle of the Christian faith? The resurrection, right. That's the obvious answer to that. Well, for Islam, it's not some miracle that Muhammad himself performed, but rather it's the Quran itself. The giving of the Quran and then the transmission of the Quran is believed to be miraculous. It's, it can only be explained uh, by supernatural causes. It, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it is believed that the Quran, when it was written down, uh, which was actually after Muhammad's death, his immediate followers um, wrote down the Quran and then distributed it. And the belief is that it has been perfectly transmitted without error, without variation, since the early part of the 7th century, well, the death of Muhammad um, in 6, 6, um, 632 uh, AD. However, as I said earlier, the Quran isn't the only scripture given by Allah, according to Islam. There were earlier scriptures that were sent down by God, and the Quran talks about these. It says um, Allah sent down other scriptures, earlier scriptures. And three in particular are mentioned, the Torah, the book that was given to Moses, the Psalms given to David, and the Gospel. Interestingly, it uses a singular form. The Quran actually uses the word Injil, Injil, which is probably um, an Arabic form of uh, evangel, uh, the Gospel. So the Gospel is taken to be a book that was given through the prophet Jesus. But these earlier scriptures have been corrupted. Uh, that when they were originally sent down, they were true revelations from Allah, but they've been corrupted. They've been corrupted by Christians. Christians have corrupted their own scriptures. The Jews have corrupted their scriptures. And that's why these other scriptures, as you find them today, can't be trusted. And the Quran was given, among other reasons, to restore the truth, to set the record straight, and to give perfect guidance. And the Quran goes on and on about how it is a perfect book, a clear revelation that gives perfect light and guidance to man. So that is the Islamic view of knowledge. It's basically divine revelation. God 
has revealed his will for mankind through a series of prophets and particularly through these messengers who have provided these books of which Muhammad is the final messenger and the Quran is the definitive book. Ethics. What is the Islamic view of morality? Where morality comes from? How we know the difference between right and wrong? Well, according to Islam, as you would predict, morality is based on the will of God, on the will of God, but not on the character of God. Here again is, I think, a significant difference between the Islamic worldview and the Christian worldview. We would say that when God wills something, he's actually expressing his own character. So, for example, when God commands us to love one another, there's a love commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Why is that? Because God is love. That's what John says in his first epistle. Brothers, we should love one another. Why? Because God is love. So God's will, God's law, is a reflection of his character. That's not true on the traditional Islamic view of things. God reveals his will, but his will is not a revelation of himself, of his character. So all there is to say is that Allah has willed this or willed that, and that is how we should live. And so there's this idea of sharia. Sharia, again, simply means Islamic law. It means a path, a pathway. Um, uh, the pathway of righteousness, a pathway of obedience, a pathway of submission, a pathway of prosperity, actually. Uh, Islam, uh, Muslims would say that to follow sharia is to, is to follow the way of, of prosperity and health and well-being in the world. And sharia is a, a divine, infallible universal law, not just for Muslims, but in theory for all mankind. All mankind should recognize this law. Now, where does Sharia come from? How do you know what Sharia teaches? Well, there are two main sources. One is the Quran, of course, but actually the Quran doesn't have a lot of legal material in it. Uh, Islam is very much a law-based religion, but the Quran actually doesn't give detailed instructions for all of life. And so there's a secondary source known as the Sunnah. The Sunnah is the example of Muhammad himself. According to Islamic teaching, Muhammad is the model Muslim. Muhammad was perfect in all his uh, lifestyle, the way he conducted himself, and so Muslims can look to Muhammad as a model. In fact, sometimes Muslims will refer to Muhammad as the living Quran. The living Quran, that's how, how, uh, how... what a high view they have of his character and his behavior, that he models what it's like to live out the Quran in everyday life. Now, how do you know how Muhammad lived? Again, the Quran doesn't give you a lot of detail on this. If you read the Quran, it doesn't tell you a lot about how Muhammad lived. But there's a large body of traditions known as the Hadith. The Hadith are extensive traditions about how Muhammad lived, and what he taught when people asked him questions about, should I do this, should I do that? He declared, this is what I say as an apostle of Allah, and it was written down in these traditions. And so the traditions, the hadith, are a very important secondary source for sharia. There are many, many sins that you can commit as a Muslim, but there are only two unforgivable sins. That is, unforgivable in the sense that if you, if you die having committed these sins without repenting, then you are, you're a goner, you're lost forever. And these two would be idolatry and apostasy. Idolatry and apostasy. Idolatry, the Islamic term is shirk. Shirk means associating partners with Allah. So to take something else and treat it as being equal to Allah is to commit shirk. 
or to say that something, some created thing has the attributes of Allah, it's equal with Allah, that would be idolatry, that would be shirk, and that would be the, the most serious sin that could be committed. As you can imagine, many Muslims, historically, have thought that Christians commit shirk by worshipping Jesus, because they see Jesus as a mere man, but we worship Jesus as God, and so they say, well, that's, that's idolatry, that's shirk, that's, that's the worst sin that could be committed. And apostasy, to turn away, to, to turn away from Muhammad, to deny Allah and Muhammad, again, is, is, would be equivalent to, to idolatry, forsaking Allah, and so these two sins really go together. Also important in, in the uh, Islamic way of thinking about living your life is the concept of jihad. Now, we have to be careful here, because many Christians, when they hear jihad, they think this is holy war. This is Muslims waging holy war against infidel in the world. Now, certainly there have been Muslims historically who have interpreted it that way, but the word jihad itself simply means struggling or striving. Struggling or striving. Jihad is striving to submit to Allah to be a good Muslim, basically to be a righteous Muslim. And Muslims have often distinguished between the inner jihad and the outer jihad. The inner jihad is overcoming temptation and trying to live righteously, to observe the five pillars. That would be the, actually, many would say the most important form of jihad. And the outer jihad would be uh, military action, military resistance, um, which again is interpreted in different ways by different Islamic schools of, um, of law. But um, the, there are different aspects to jihad, and there's a lot of debate in Islam about exactly what jihad uh, means in, in the modern world. Of course, there are very uh, violent interpretations. There are other much more moderate interpretations as well. And then lastly, salvation. What, about, um, what does Islam teach about what's wrong with the world, and how can it be put right? What is its view of salvation? Well, I think the way to sum up the Islamic view would be that our most serious problem, the most, humanity's basic problem is infidelity. Infidelity. We are not living in submission to the will of Allah. Again, Islam simply means submission or surrender to Allah, and most people in the world are not living in submission to the will of Allah as it's been revealed through Muhammad, and so the basic problem with the world is that it's unfaithful. It's not living in submission. Infidelity is the basic problem. And the solution to the problem is Islam itself. Islam meaning submission. Uh, the solution to, to being unfaithful is to repent and to commit oneself to living a faithful life as a Muslim. So uh, the solution to infidelity is to bring all things into submission to the will of Allah. Now again, Muslims interpret this in different ways. Some will say that this should be done peacefully, this should be done through um, uh, preaching, proclaiming the message of Islam and trying to persuade people, and others, as we know historically, have gone further and said if, if people won't do it peacefully, then you have to make people submit by force. There are different views. But certainly, Islam itself is the solution. And there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a final day of resurrection. Uh, everyone who has died will be raised bodily. Uh, there will be a bodily resurrection. And the day of judgment. And this judgment will be according to the weighing of deeds. The Quran is very clear about this. There are uh, numerous verses in the Quran saying that on the day of judgment, our deeds will be weighed in the balance. 
There's a metaphor of scales. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you will enter into paradise. If not, then you enter into hell. And the, the mainstream view is that good Muslims, where the balance turns the, the positive way, the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, will go straight into paradise. Bad Muslims, those who are Muslims but they haven't lived good lives, will go to hell for a while to be punished and then eventually will make it into paradise. But those who are not Muslims, those who have not um, made a basic profession of faith, made no effort to submit to Allah, um, so that would be people of other religions or atheists, will go to uh, hell eternally. There will be no escape for them. But whether one ultimately ends parad- uh, enters paradise depends on Allah's mercy. No one's going to live a perfect life, so at the end of the day you have to rely on Allah's mercy to forgive your sins, and you have to hope for the best. There's no, no guarantee. But certainly, in this way of thinking, there is no doctrine of atonement. There's no vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement means substitutionary atonement. Islam teaches clearly that no one can atone for the sins of another person. Everyone has to bear the burden of their own deeds. They have to pay the price for their own good, bad deeds. Uh, and so everyone's on their own at the end of the day. Uh, you have to uh, do your best to live a righteous life. And there's no assurance. There's no assurance of salvation. I've had many conversations with um, Islamic imams who think say, you know, I, I, I'm doing my best to live uh, as a faithful Muslim, I'm observing the pillars, um, I, I consider myself a, a good Muslim, and I will ask them, so do you know that you're entering paradise? And they always say, no. No one knows if they're entering paradise. We hope we will, but there's no assurance, there's no guarantee. Well, this will give you then a, an overview of the, the worldview of Islam. So let's think a bit critically about this and uh, apply some of the testing tools that I talked about. And I'm going to give you three examples. There's many, many ways that we could critique the Islamic worldview, but I'm going to focus on three particular points. First, we can apply the tool of coherence to this worldview in a number of respects. Here's the first way we might apply the tool of coherence. According to Islam, Allah is both just and he is merciful. He's both perfect in justice, but he also shows mercy by, over, by, by overlooking sins, by forgiving sins. But how do you reconcile the two? How is it that Allah can be perfectly just and yet decide not to punish some sins? Because he, that's, that's the teaching, that sometimes he will show mercy and not punish you for your sins. Well, according to Islamic teaching, there's really no solution to this problem. How can God be perfectly just and yet also show mercy to sinners? According to Islam, Allah simply decides. He simply decrees to overlook some people's sins and in a sense he sort of bypasses justice or he redefines justice. Whatever Allah wills is right. But there's no real solution to this problem. Contrast this with Christianity. Let me put this to you. How, How does Christianity resolve this tension between God's justice and God's mercy. Jesus, right? What specifically? The cross, right? The atonement. According to Christianity, God the Son takes on flesh, the incarnation, and offers himself as an atoning sacrifice. He bears the sins of sinners in their place. He stands in their place and he makes a substitutionary atonement. And so God can be perfect in justice by punishing sin, 
but by showing mercy because the punishment falls on the substitute, Christ, rather than on the sinner. So uh, Christianity in its doctrine of atonement resolves this problem, whereas in Islam it's an unresolved and I would say unresolvable tension. So that's one issue. Here's another way we can apply the coherence tool to this worldview. There's a problem in the way that Islam treats these earlier scriptures that it affirms. Islam teaches that the Quran is a divinely revealed book, but also there were these earlier scriptures. The Quran says itself that God sent down the Torah and the Gospel, that they contain light and guidance, and that the Quran is in line with these earlier scriptures. The Quran is supposed to confirm these earlier scriptures, at least as they were originally given. In fact, the Quran goes so far as to say to Christians and Jews, consult your own scriptures to confirm Muhammad's message. The Quran directs Christians and Jews to their own scriptures to confirm what Muhammad is saying. However, there's a problem here. On the one hand, the Quran affirms earlier prophets, Moses, David, John the Baptist, Jesus, there are many biblical prophets that the Quran affirms, and these scriptures, but it also contradicts them at the same time. This is a basic problem. On the one hand, it affirms these earlier scriptures. On the other hand, it contradicts them. Um, I put a bunch of references up here. You can, you can look these up. These are all references to the Quran, chapter and verse. But a number of texts in the Quran explicitly say that God sent down these scriptures and that Christians and Jews should consult them, consult their own scriptures to find out what, uh, to confirm what Muhammad is saying to them. But there are also contradictions, and that's just a selection of texts where, for example, uh, the the Quran denies that Jesus was crucified, it denies that Jesus was uh, God, Uh, it denies that any of Jesus' disciples worship God, uh, that Jesus, it says that Jesus was a mere prophet, nothing more than a prophet, and so there are contradictions. On the one hand, the Quran affirms these early scriptures, on the other hand, it contradicts these scriptures as well. So... This is a problem. But Muslims have an immediate response to this problem. Anyone know what it is? Right, exactly. These earlier scriptures have become corrupted. This is the standard Muslim response. The earlier scriptures have been corrupted by Jews and Christians themselves. Now, why Jews and Christians would corrupt their own scriptures is never really satisfactorily answered. But this is the story. The reason for these contradictions is that that Muslims and Jews, uh, Christians and Jews have added or changed their scriptures. However, this doesn't solve the problem for the Muslim for at least two reasons. First, the Quran itself implicitly denies this. The Quran assumes the exact opposite because the Quran directs Christians and Jews to consult their own scriptures. Why would the Quran do that if those scriptures have been corrupted? Why would Allah direct people to consult corrupted scriptures? The Quran actually assumes that the Christians and Jews have scriptures that are reliable. And in fact, the Quran says in a number of other places that when Allah sends down a book, he preserves it. Whenever Allah gives a revelation, he prevents that revelation from becoming corrupted. So that doesn't even fit with what the Quran itself assumes or teaches. But here's the second problem, a historical problem. We have full manuscripts of the New Testament that date back to the 4th and the 5th centuries. We've got fragments that date back even earlier, arguably to the 1st century, but we have complete or near-complete manuscripts of the New Testament 
dating to the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, can anyone tell me why are those dates significant? Before, that's right, they've come several hundred years before the Quran and before the birth of Muhammad. So Muhammad, Muhammad was, according to traditional dating, born in 570 AD, that's in the 6th century. So there are copies of the scriptures that we have in our possession today that we can confirm what they said from hundreds of years before Muhammad was even born and the Quran was even revealed. So we have physical manuscript evidence that the, the scriptures have not been corrupted, but they've been, uh, they were that whatever Christians and Jews had in Muhammad's day are the same scriptures that we have today. So, this is a problem. This is a real fundamental problem for the Islamic worldview that on the one hand it affirms these early scriptures, contradicts them, claims they're corrupted, but cannot consistently um, back up that claim of corruption. All right, one last tool, um, taking a somewhat different tack here, and that's applying the tool of hope. Uh, I talked about these four tools for testing worldviews. And one is the tool of hope. Does this worldview provide hope? Hope in the present and hope for the future. Well, as I said a moment ago, according to Islamic teaching, there is absolutely no assurance of anyone being saved. In fact, I've had, I've had, Mus- um, I've had imams tell me that not even Muhammad had assurance of salvation. So if Muhammad didn't have it, Certainly no one else is going to have it. And the problem, again, is the lack of a doctrine of atonement. Islam has no doctrine of atonement, which means Islam cannot offer true freedom from guilt. How do you have confidence that your sins have been forgiven? Because you have confidence that Christ bore the penalty for them completely and fully on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, it meant he had made a satisfaction for sin. He made a perfect atonement for sin. Our Forgiveness is grounded in this historical event of the atonement, which means that we can have true freedom from guilt because Jesus paid the price. Likewise, Islam cannot offer genuine assurance of salvation because it's all down to you. Whether you get in to paradise or not depends on whether you live a sufficiently righteous life. And even then you've got to rely on the mercy of Allah, but there's no guarantees. No assurance of salvation. But again, in Christianity you can have assurance because it's not about what you can do. It's not about your good works. You can't work your way to heaven. It doesn't depend on whether you are able to keep the law. It depends on whether Christ kept the law on your behalf, which, of course, he did, and he did perfectly. So because it has no doctrine of atonement, it has no, it has no uh, Christ, therefore it cannot offer true freedom from guilt. It cannot offer genuine assurance of salvation. In contrast, compare the Christian worldview. The cross gives us assurance of God's forgiveness, It gives us assurance that we have been reconciled to God by this perfect sacrifice made by his own son. And then we have the empty tomb. Islam denies both of these. It denies the crucifixion. It denies the resurrection of Christ. Because, of course, if Christ wasn't crucified, there's no resurrection either. But we have the empty tomb that guarantees for us that Christ paid the price and that just as Christ was raised in glory, so we one day will be raised in glory. Not raised for a final judgment where we don't know the outcome. No. We have confidence that we will be raised and that God will say to us, you are my sons, you are my daughters, because of your faith in Christ. Not because of what you did, you have done, but because of what he has done on your behalf. Very, very different. We have a basis for hope that the Islamic worldview cannot, cannot supply. Okay, one last um, 
uh, section, and, and uh, there may be time for questions. I know time is getting on, but I do want to cover this because it's it's important practical matter. You have an understanding now of the basics of Islam and, and some uh, understanding of, of, of problems with the Islamic worldview that the, the Christian worldview doesn't face. But what does this mean in practice? If you're going to share the gospel with a Muslim, what are some practical tips? Well, here are just four practical tips I want to leave you with. First, keep the focus on Jesus. Keep the focus on Jesus. If you're having a conversation, talk about who Jesus really was and what did he come to do. Who did Jesus really claim to be? What did he actually accomplish when he came? Was he just a prophet or was he more than that? And how do we know who Jesus really was? What are the sources that really tell us who Jesus was and what he came to do? Should we trust sources that came from the first century that were written by eyewitnesses or that are based on eyewitness testimony, people who knew Jesus personally, or should we rely on scriptures, supposed scriptures that appeared some 600 years later in a completely different part of the world? Which are the reliable sources to know about Jesus? Are they going to be in the New Testament, or is it the Quran that's going to be a reliable source for telling us about who Jesus really was? Avoid getting sidetracked into secondary issues. Keep bringing the conversation back to Jesus. It's tempting to talk about atrocities that Islam has caused in the world uh, throughout history or about Muhammad's dubious behavior in this area or that area. That's not irrelevant, but that's not the main issue. The main issue is who was Jesus and what did he come to do? Second tip, take time to correct misconceptions about Christianity. Many, many Muslims have been taught false things about Christianity, that we worship three gods, that we believe that God procreated with Mary and had a physical child that we call Jesus. Yes, that's really. When we say that Jesus is the son of God, that's what Muslims think, that that is a biological son. We believe that somehow God procreated with Mary. Um, They believe that when we teach that salvation is by grace, that means it doesn't matter how you live. As long as you believe in Jesus, you can live any way you want. That's how Muslims perceive Christianity. Take time to correct these misconceptions. Most of the work in talking to Muslims is just explaining to them, this is what the Bible actually says. This is what Christians actually believe. Respectfully point out the tensions, the difficulties, the problems in the Islamic worldview, such as the ones I talked about just a moment ago. The tension between God's justice and God's mercy. How do you resolve that? How can God be perfectly just and yet forgive sin? Christianity has an answer to that. Islam does not. Or the problem of uh, the tension between the Quran and the earlier scriptures. Why is it that the Quran contradicts these earlier scriptures while also implying that they came from Allah and that they've been preserved? And then the last tip, and if you take away nothing else from what I've said this evening, this would be the most important tip of all. Encourage your Muslim friends to read one of the Gospels for themselves. Encourage the best, absolutely the best thing you can do for any Muslim is to encourage them to read one of the Gospels directly and say to them, look, the Quran itself affirms that there is an earlier book known as the Gospel. Well, aren't you interested? Aren't you curious to know what it says? Well, many Muslims will be curious enough to be willing to take a look for themselves. They may be wary, but you can encourage them. Say, look, this is, this is, this is, this is the book that was, uh, was given through Jesus and his 
disciples. Um, of the four Gospels, probably Luke's Gospel is the best choice. Uh, I won't go into the reasons for that, but if you're going to give uh, a copy of one of the Gospels, then generally speaking, Luke is the, is the most appropriate one to give to uh, a Muslim friend. But encourage them. Encourage them to read the Gospels, because at the end of the day, it's not our words that are going to change people's hearts. We want to get God's word into, before them. Uh, we want to expose them to God's word, and Holy Spirit, we pray, will bless that and bring conviction and reveal to them the true Jesus, not the false Jesus of the Quran, but the true, true Jesus of God's inspired scriptures. Okay, that, uh, that brings me to the end of uh, my, my presentation on this topic. Um, Dan, have we got time for questions? Or? Yeah, okay. Um, if, you, if you have any questions, I know we, we covered a lot of ground, there's so much more that could be said, but if anyone has questions... Since we got questions, could you elaborate on the Luke choice? Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah, here's the, here's the short story. So many people think that Mark's gospel would be the best one to give a uh, Muslim because it's short, it's punchy, it's, it's the most accessible of them. The problem is, in the very first verse of Mark's gospel, it says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that immediately puts the defenses up for Muslim because the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, they completely misunderstand that. They think it's blasphemous. So that's a stumbling block. Now, of course, all the Gospels say that Jesus is the Son of God, but not all of them say it right there in the first verse. Um, Matthew's Gospel is often seen as being a very Jewish Gospel. Uh, John's Gospel is, is, is good, but um, it's a little more... Um, the theology of John is a bit more developed and, and, and harder to understand. So of all of them, Luke's is the one that... I, I've been told by many Mus missionaries to Muslims is the one that they use. Yeah, good. Is there a question? Because no one wants to go to hell even for a short time. If you read what the Quran says about hell, it is, uh, I mean, the Bible says some scary things about hell, but in the Quran, it's depicted in, in, in the most physically torturous terms of a place of scolding, burning. There's depictions of... Um, Allah will um, burn off the skin of people and then give them new skins so that they can get burned off a second time and on and on and on. So it's just, it's not like it's, okay, I'll endure it for a time and I'll get out eventually. No one wants, it, it's depicted in, in a, such a way that even a short time there would be agonizingly painful. So that's, that's the main answer to the question. Yeah. Plus, no, no Muslim wants to bear the shame. You know, a lot of Islamic culture is ben, uh, it depends on the idea of honor and shame, and nothing would be more shameful than not going straight to paradise. Uh, Matt, sorry. <laughs> I'll get back to you. Matt. Who's this? Well, it exists in the sense that, that he's acting in hell. Yes, it's, it's Allah who's sort of directly... Um, causing this, the, the agonies of hell. Um, but, I mean, in Christian theology, we would say that, that, that God is, you know, if hell is a real place and God is omnipresent, then God is, is present there, but he's not present to bless, he's present to, to curse in hell. So I don't think that there's... There are, of course, differences between the Islamic and Christian view, but I wouldn't deny that God is present in hell, but it's not the, it's not the kind of covenantal blessing presence that the people of God experience. We. Exactly, right. <laughs> That's a very insightful question because there does seem to be a double standard here. Why is it that Allah permitted the earlier scriptures to be corrupted but somehow they've got a guarantee 
uh, that the, the Quran hasn't been corrupted? And that's the very sort of question that I would put to a Muslim. The answer generally tends to be, Allah knows. This is, this is the typical answer for a Muslim. If, if they don't have an answer, they will say, Allah knows. And that's okay. He had a reason. We don't know what it is. So he, he decided to, to let the, these earlier scriptures become corrupted, but he's preserved the Quran, maybe because it's the last one. He's just decided, okay, now we've got to stick with this one. There are also verses in the Quran that say that when that Allah causes a man to go to the, along the straight path and he also causes man to stray. So, there's, again, it's all about the decree, that God has decreed that some will, will go to the righteous path and some will, some will go off the righteous path. Um, and this all serves Allah's purposes. Um, and that may, may well include the corruption of the scriptures. Allah, Allah permitted it so that some people would be caused to stray. But again, there's no ultimate explanation for that. But I agree with you. I think, it's a, I think it's a double standard. And I think that if a Muslim believes that the earlier scriptures were permitted to be corrupted, then they've got no guarantee that their current scriptures have not been corrupted as well. And actually, as I didn't get into this, but as a point of historical fact, the Quran hasn't been preserved perfectly. There are variant manuscripts of the Quran. So Islam teaches that there cannot be any variations there haven't been any errors introduced in the, in the centuries since the Quran was written down. Um, but that's not true. I mean, scholars of the Quran know that there are variant manuscripts. Most Muslims are just completely ignorant of that or in denial about it. Is there, is there teaching on that? Uh, because it's fairly clear that it's not been perfectly preserved. I mean, anybody that's thought right. about it at all. Yeah. Do they coach them to think differently about that? An individual Muslim or... How do, they, how do they deal with that problem well, on a practical level? Well, the, the fact is that most Muslims are kept from knowing it. They're ah. just not told this. Okay. Um, it, it never comes up. They, what they have been told is that the Quran is a perfect book. It's been perfectly preserved, and that's all you need to know. So um, it's not as though they've been told, well, this is how you explain it. They don't know there's anything to explain in the first place. Now, those who do have various explanations to do with, well, um, uh, these are, these are very um, minor changes or uh, there's all kinds of, sort of elaborate explanations uh, of it, but they're really rationalizations. But probably not a place to get into with the average Muslim. I, really don't, I don't think you're going to get much it. mileage. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, it, it's maybe worth bringing up, but uh, unless you've done a bit of reading on it mm. yourself, um, it's not necessarily going to go in a different direction. Well, um, it's, it's debated. Um, there, are, there, are some, uh, there are some pretty old manuscripts that, that um, almost certainly date to the middle of the 7th century, so not, not far long uh, after Muhammad's death, so you know, around about 650, 660. Um, there are arguments that, there, that some are earlier, but um, these are disputed points. Well, um, women can be saved too. Uh, there are, there are, a faithful Muslim woman um, has, has a hope of entering paradise as well. But the reality is that, that Islam in its original form was very much shaped by 7th century Arabic culture, which was patriarchal and man-dominated. And so, so the depictions of paradise are precisely the sort of depictions that you would expect a 7th century Arabic man to come up with 
if he was portraying um, uh, paradise as a place where all his, all his earthly pleasures would be satisfied. So it's a very man-centered vision, a very male-oriented vision of paradise. Now, there are um, hadiths, there are traditions that talk about um, women entering paradise as well, but they're generally treated as... It's, it's a sort of almost like an afterthought. Yeah, sure, women will go there too, but that's not, that's not really the, the main focus. Muslims have a lot of misconceptions, both about translations of the Quran and translations of the Bible. So uh, traditionally, Islam has taught that the Quran is an untranslatable book. Um, it's, it was given in Arabic, and what we would consider a translation, they would consider to be, an, they would call an interpretation of the Quran. So if it's not Arabic, it's not the Quran. Uh, and they, so they, they apply that when they think about the Bible. They say, well, a translation of the Bible can't be, can't be originally what Allah would have in, intended. Uh, they also have an idea that our Bibles are translations of translations of translations of translations which have been corrupted. They, they, they don't really get that our modern translations are direct translations from Greek and Hebrew. But basically, you, you just have to educate. Uh, you have to explain that for us, what is important, although the, the original form is the inspired form, the important thing is what is the, what is the message that we're receiving? And the message is something that can be translated from one language to another. And in fact, it was God's purpose. God wanted his message to go to all the peoples of the world. And that's, what, that's why we translate the Bible into all the languages of, of the world. Uh, we can also point out, for example, that the apostles themselves probably used a translation of the Bible. They, they often quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they themselves endorsed a translation process. But the reality is that most Muslims in the West can't read their Quran in Arabic either. They're, rel they're reliant on translations. They may have memorized it in Arabic, but they don't understand it. And that's, that's okay because the Quran is something to be recited, not really understood. Your imam will tell you what it means, but you just memorize it and recite it. So you have to recognize that the way that they think about Scripture, God's Word, is actually very different in many respects than the way we think about Scripture. Sharon, last question, please. I, I, I would recommend that, that any Christian should read some of the Quran just to get a sense of some of its content. Um, I teach a class on, on Islam at seminary, and I do not require the students to read the entire Quran. I mean, it's not, it's not even as long as the New Testament, so it's not as if it's a particularly long book, but it's very repetitive. I mean, you could, read, you could read a quarter of it and basically get everything that you need. So, uh, actually, if you, if you read the, maybe the first um, nine or ten chapters of the Quran, which are the longer ones, the longer ones are at the front, then you will get a good sense of the, what, the sort of things that the Quran talks about, and particularly how it talks about Jesus. Uh, most of the material about Jesus is in the, in the first ten surahs of the Quran. Um, and I think it's... I think a Muslim will have more respect for you if you can say that you've read some of their book. And if we're asking Muslims to read the Bible, then it's only fair to say, well, we'd be, we'd be willing to read the Quran and let's, let's talk about the differences. Because the Quran talks about Jesus. It talks about many of the events of the Bible. It talks about the flood. It talks about the Exodus. Um, it talks about the birth of Jesus. It gets the details very wrong, but it does talk about these things. So um, if, you, if you're willing to if you're willing to read their book and you can encourage them to read our scriptures, then um, uh, at least you, you, you've got uh, a starting point for discussion. 
Um, I, don't, I don't agree with those who want to appeal to the Quran as a kind of authority and say, look, um, look, the Quran says this about Jesus and what it really means is this. I don't think there's any mileage in that because the Quran gets so much wrong. Uh, it, it doesn't get everything wrong. It, it repeats some of the biblical um, claims in some respects. But just familiarity with some of the things that the Quran says, for example, what it says about these earlier scriptures, what it says about the gospel can be, again, uh, build bridges for conversations with, with Muslims. Dr. Anderson, thank you. Appreciate your time tonight. Wonderful to see each of you here. I hope that we've gained, uh, for evangelistic reasons, uh, some knowledge here and also just understanding of those who surround us. Um, it, if we could have you make sure to get out to the lobby here, let's let him get there as we close. And if you have a question that you really have to ask that wasn't asked, you didn't get time to, I'm sure he can field that here just for a few moments. There is a seminar that starts in the morning, so let's not hold him up for two hours here or anything like that. Uh, he needs to get some rest and be ready for the day tomorrow. Please be in prayer again for that gathering. We pray the Lord would just use it and allow us to deepen as church leaders that are gathered for that time tomorrow. So he's got that in the morning, so just keep that in mind as he gets out here and gets some rest tonight. Thank you for your labors again and uh, grateful for this time. Um, I've worked with a, well, let's say it this way, a Muslim evangelist worked on me for a while, and uh, it was an interesting uh, exchange on a lot of levels. But I, I felt like the, the critical moment after numerous meetings was when I kind of gave up and let him do his thing and say his thing, and I explained that you don't understand me from what I'm hearing. I'm a sinner, and I can do all the things you're telling me to do. I can keep the five pillars. I can do these things. I don't think that'd be particularly difficult. But what I do know is that no matter what I did, it would not change my sinful heart. I said, what can you give me that would give me freedom from my sin? And this guy had a Bible that was marked up as much as mine. I mean, he, had, he was a prepared evangelist. He had a Quran that was marked up more than any Bible I've owned. He was ready for everything. When I asked him that question, he had no answer. He just came back to the five pillars. He said, do these things and you'll be okay. And I, I think if we can latch on to that and understand that, there is no atonement for sin apart from Christ. There's no other answer. There's nothing else that could be done than what has been done in our, in our Savior. And we thank him for that assurance, that atonement for our sin, and that confidence that I can enter into eternity, not because my good deeds outweigh my bad, or somewhere along the line, Allah was merciful for reasons I don't know. But we can know with assurance that Christ has paid the full price. And in that, we can have confidence. And, and by God's grace, share that truth with those who follow Islam. Let's do so mercifully and graciously and not in a debating way, but to say, here's the truth and to share that truth. That truth can win hearts and by God's grace it will. Let's stand together and we'll be closed in prayer. Father, how we praise you for the truth that you've revealed to us and our hearts grieve with those blinded to the freedom from sin and that that can, cannot say there is now no condemnation. 
I praise you that we can say that in Christ. As we have been united with him, there's no condemnation that he has paid the full penalty. We rejoice in that provision for us by your grace. And we see a lot of similarities with those who hold to this faith. We are thankful uh, on some level that we have some ground to stand on and to relate to them. We believe in your providence. We believe that there is one God. Though in a fuller and deeper complex monotheism, we do thank you for the um, moral, ethical application of their scriptures to life for many of them. And Lord, we thank you as well for the truth that you have revealed to us uniquely in Christ. And I pray that we would bring those two worlds together and that you would open opportunities for us here tonight in the days ahead to relate to those of the Islamic faith and that we would talk to them and know that there actually is some common conversation right away. And I pray that you would aid us to that end and bring us to Christ crucified and risen. And Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and that we might even rejoice as a church in seeing those from Islamic backgrounds coming to know Christ as Savior. May we be faithful to proclaim that truth. Thank you for the time together for this equipping. We thank you for Dr. Anderson and his sacrifice for us tonight to be here and to help us with these ideas. May they be applied for your glory. Guide us now this evening and bless the day tomorrow and the gathering that takes place here. Give him wisdom and strength. And I pray that you'd even now be drawing individuals here who need the teaching that is here tomorrow. And may you continue to bless this congregation and those who gather in your people throughout the world. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you.